everybody. Um, I'm going to be sharing out of Luke 10, and it's a, it's a familiar passage for many of us. I've got to be teaching about the, um, what we would call the Good Samaritan passage. And I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm kind of excited about it because I think there's some things in this passage that maybe I've not seen or paid attention to, so praying that this will be a word of encouragement for you as well. The, the title I've given the message is, Go and Do the Same. The 16th of December, 1944, was the beginning of the last German offensive in the Western Front of World War II. And it was then that all of Germany tried to bring all of their forces and try to bust through the lines of the Allied forces in the densely forested Ardennes region of Belgium and Luxembourg. And we refer to it in history as the Battle of the Bulge. Um, it just there's a line, and it just made this huge bulge. It was an awful, awful battle. It went on for uh, several weeks. It, it they they the date it from the 16th of December, 1944 to the 25th of January, 1945. I want to talk to you about two soldiers that were on. That were actually engaged in that battle. They were five miles apart from one another. And were actually vowed enemies. Don Malarkey was a paratrooper for the U.S. Army. He served as in a continuous stretch uh, on the bloody front lines of that of that fight more than any man in Easy Company. Um, on the other side of the battle, there was a German soldier named Fritz Engelbert. Five miles from one another didn't know each other. Don Malarkey had the unique um, part of his story. Many, many of us are familiar with his story because actually what happened with Don Malarkey was first, because of, of the brutal effects of the war, his own testimony is that he tried to drink away all of the last, you know, the, the shame and the guilt and just the, the horror of it that wouldn't go away. And finally, he began to write about it, and someone picked up his story, and it actually turned into an HBO miniseries that was hugely successful. Some of you might have heard of it, called Band of Brothers. It's, it's a moving uh, piece uh, that, is, that tells uh, just, just the graphic story of what Malarkey and uh, so many of his comrades went through just the hell of war. So Don Malarkey, on the 60th anniversary of the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge, was back in Belgium. The night before the 60th anniversary, he was in a pub with a number of his comrades that he called his brothers. And, you know, of course, by this point, he's a little bit of a celebrity and people know who he is. There was a U.S. soldier that was stationed in Germany that heard about Malarkey's story, and I assume that he had seen the, the, the movie miniseries, but he'd also met a man in Germany in a small village, and his name was Fritz Engelbert. Unlike Don Malarkey, Fritz lived a very quiet, unassuming life, and, and really sort of an unnoticed life in this small German village, but this U.S. soldier had befriended him and said, I want you to come with me. I think you need to meet. 
I think it would be good for you to meet this man. And so when he heard about this reunion, this U.S. soldier, this young man, brought this, this former German soldier into a pub where Malarkey and his friends were gathered together anxiously. Engelbert tells the story that when he came into the presence of these soldiers, his former enemies, he wasn't sure quite how that was going to go, but the young U.S. soldier assured him it was going to be okay. And he introduced him specifically to Malarkey, who immediately stretched out his hand and said, Welcome to the band of brothers. And in that handshake began what for them went on for the next several years until both of their deaths. What they testify to, a quite remarkable story. It's now actually documented in a book called Saving My Enemy. These two men who were sworn enemies in those years became, by their testimony, the best of friends. In that handshake began a journey for the two of them where they began to sit down with one another and they began to listen to each other. And as Don Malarkey began to tell some of his story and then he listened to Fritz Engelbert tell his story, <clears throat> the exchange went something like this. Engelbert began to confess and say, to Fritz began to say to his new friend, Don, I, I have felt horrible guilt that I was ever a part. I grew up and, and I was a part of youth, Hitler's youth movement and I believed all the lies and I feel so guilty for what I believed. I feel so guilty for what I was a part of and all of the pain that I participated in bringing upon the world to which Don looked at him and said, you're not to blame you are simply doing what you thought was right. You are a part of a larger machine. And, and then Malarkey looked at him in the eye and began to confess his own guilt for the lies that he had taken, some of them in sheer anger, some of them that haunted him. He talked about how he would look into a glass and he would see the faces of those that he had killed and he was trying to make it go away. He couldn't make it go away. And it was Fritz who looked at him and said, it isn't your fault. You were simply doing what you were told. And then, remarkably, they asked for and extended to each other forgiveness. That friendship became so deep that their families even traveled from the U.S. to Belgium and back and forth to the point that now today, even after Don now has died and Fritz has died, but these families now share life together. Sixty years, these men were scarred, haunted by nightmares of war. And finally, after they met, listen to this, they were able to save each other not by their power, but by extending forgiveness and choosing loving friendship. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Listen to this statement. This is powerful. The will of God to which the law gives expression is that men should defeat their enemies by loving them. Beloved, the good news that we proclaim this morning is that in a world that you and I live in right now, that we are invited daily to this dose of fear and division and othering people around us and fearing them. Nothing is more powerful than the love of God revealed in human lives. No barrier, no boundary. There is no place, no person that mercy cannot reach. And beloved, that's good news. I want to give this familiar text expression before we go into it in Luke 10. I I didn't really go, we were looking at Luke 10 last week, the sending out of the 70. One of the things I I failed to really put my finger on strongly is this. If you look, you begin to ask the question, you see, I'm I'm looking at this text, where is Jesus? We're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Where is he when he's telling this story? Well, have you got that map? That I sent you. Are you able to pop that one up there real quick? Now I, I want you to see this. Is the is the map up there? Ah, there we are. If you're able to share that, yeah, that's great. So watch this. There would be typically three ways. Now, Jesus, um, hang on a second. Jesus spends a lot of his ministry, oh, it's not wanting to shine through. (laughs) He won't shine through. It won't work. All right. Jesus does the majority of his ministry to the north, okay? So we're talking, you know, Capernaum, Tiberias, up in that direction. Okay, further north, put your pointer up there. That's in Galilee. That's where Jesus spends a lot of his ministry on the Sea of Galilee. That's where he calls the disciples and uh, he's doing his ministry. Now, there are several times that he makes the journey down to Jerusalem. In between Galilee and the, the, uh, the area of Jerusalem is this section called Samaria. Now, you probably have heard some teaching if you've been in the church at any point in your life, knowing that the Samaritans are not only just sort of, quote, half-breeds, but there's this long years, years and generations of, of hostility between the Jewish people and Samaritans, so much so that uh, for a Jew, Samaritans were worse than Gentiles. They were, they, you know, these are individuals they did not want to be around. So much so Samaritans even formed their own, their own place of worship. Remember John 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well? Well, that's because she went to worship at a whole different place because they'd formed their own uh, style of worship. They wouldn't go to Jerusalem. That's the kind of hostility that was between uh, the Samaritans and the Jewish people. All right. Now, you see these three lines. There's one that goes over here, the red line that goes over to the east, and that's how most people would go from uh, Galilee down to Jerusalem. They'd cross over. They wouldn't want to go through Samaria. So they'd cross the River Jordan, go through Pella, Sukkoth, and then they'd come through Jericho and take the, the Jericho Road into Jerusalem. Some would take the western route, which is more the coastal pathway, that green route. But what's clear is that Jesus in John 4 
makes this direct path because he's over here real close uh, to Mount Ebal when he's talking to the woman at the well. So it's not a stretch of our imagination to believe that Jesus would have just taken the path that he had taken before right straight through Samaria. Now, as we look at the text in Luke 9, here's the reason all this is important because I want to locate where he is, okay? This is really important. Luke 9 the Apostle John is going and he's rebuking somebody who's trying to do ministry that wasn't approved by the disciples. And Jesus said, what are you doing? They're not, I mean, they're for us. They're not against us. Puzzling in John's mind. We're in Samaria. Jesus, God can't operate here. And then it gets, we get down to going a little bit later and and. The disciples are going, and Jesus goes into a village that rejects Jesus. That's a really not great place. Who rejects Jesus? James and John said, nobody. Let's burn the village. Right? Jesus said, you don't even know what spirit you're of, guys. This is the spirit of Jesus. Okay, so my point is, They've rejected Jesus. Where are they? They are in Samaria. So much so that when he gets done saying, you don't know what spirit you're of. Oh, by the way, now I'm going to send you out. And I want you to proclaim. I want you to heal the sick. And I want you to speak peace and look for people of peace. And I want you to proclaim, watch this, that the kingdom is near. What? Jesus, now, come on, let's get this straight. If the kingdom is going to be somewhere, it's not going to be there. So this is, this is what I want us to get our heads around. The fact that for Jesus' disciples and for any good Jew, their imagination would have been the kingdom of God is coming. Amen. Hallelujah. But not there. Jesus said, I'm going to send you out. And they came back rejoicing because there's, part of that rejoicing is they're shaking their heads. Even demons, listen to us. I, I had no idea. Jesus, I had no idea. Everybody's feeling kind of puzzled, trying to make sense of what's happening. I'm following the ministry of Jesus. Oh, remember, oh wait, yeah, you did talk to a woman at the well in Samaria. And so as they're beginning to see all this stuff happen, and it's sort of reeling around them. You, you, can't, you, are you guys catching the, the kind of the feel I'm trying to paint here? This is when we have this lawyer, or he's a religious leader is my point. He stands up as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, Hey, teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus answers the question um, with two things, two questions. He said, what do you, what's in the law? How do you read it? Interesting. Um, Jesus acknowledges that the Scriptures are still there to make somebody wise. How do you read it? What are you looking at? And then how do you see it? By the way, those are two really good questions to ask folks. <laughs> What are you seeing, and what do you think that God might be saying to you as a result of it? Now, this religious teacher that is referred to in my translation as a lawyer says, um, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Good, good, good stuff. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he ties Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor. Good job. Jesus said, 
You got it? Oh, watch this. This is so good. See, a lot of my evangelicalism that I've grown up with is that we, we wanted to make sure our sins were forgiven. And then as far as, as far as our relationship with God is concerned, many times it was all about knowing information. This guy knew the information. Jesus seems to think there's something else that's important. You need to inhabit it. Go do it. Participate with me. So he turns back to his friends, and then, of course, this, this religious leader, in an attempt to justify himself, says, I know I got the answer right, Jesus. Just to be clear, who's my neighbor? So then Jesus sets the scene. Now, is my map still up here? Oh, it is. All right. So just to set the scene, Jesus is speaking to a religious leader who would have taken that eastern route repeatedly. You see how pointy this gets? He wouldn't have gone through the middle. He would not have wanted to bother with going through the middle of the country. Now, he happens to be in Jesus' presence, probably because he's following uh, um, the, the disciples in Jesus' ministry. But most religious leaders would have gone to the east and have taken this pathway from Jericho to Jerusalem. So Jesus tells a story. And it's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is an interesting road. Now, if you can, uh, you want to go ahead and pop up that first next picture up there. Now, if you see this picture, this is the way this road literally looks today. It is a difficult desert road. And in Jesus' day, it was worse. It runs through treacherous wilderness. Its nickname in Jesus' day was the way of blood. Here's part of the reason why, if you look historically, Herod just got done building the temple in Jerusalem and all of his other little sundry things that he'd done in Jerusalem. He started about 25 B.C., 25 before Christ. We know it took him about 40 years to build it. It's just gotten done. He just laid a bunch of people off, thousands of them. Recession. Unemployment, it's bad. And we have individuals, some who are treacherous, some who are not necessarily wanting to be treacherous but are turning to treacherous ways. I'm saying it's a difficult time. And this road was, was often, you know, you had folks that were there who were just trying to find somebody to fill their pockets just to meet their own needs. Now, that road covers 17 miles it starts in Jerusalem, which is about 2,000 feet above sea level. It descends down into Jericho, 1,000 feet below sea level, about 3,300 feet between the two. And the road descends. Bring me that next shot here. It goes through a valley that is, looks, this is, this is that valley. It goes through a valley, the, the road to Jericho. And that valley spends most of the day in the shadow. And that's why scholars to this day believe that this is the valley David's referring to in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Okay? When David was talking, that wasn't just some sort of metaphor. He's referring to an actual place that people were familiar with. Now, here we've got some pilgrims that were hiking this path. Um, in the shadow, through the valley of the shadow of death, or the way of blood. Um, it would be, you can go ahead and flip the next one up there. Um, the, 
this, this, yeah, here's another set of folks today that are trying to trudge that path. Go one more uh, there. It was too great to be traveled in a single day, so it almost always left them having to spend the night somewhere along the way. This is a Greek Orthodox monastery called St. George that's actually about halfway, and it lies in the shadow of the, the, the valley of the shadow of death. Now, so that's, that's the, this is where Jesus is, and he's looking at this religious leader and says, yeah, I think you're familiar with this. Let me tell you a story about a place you're, you know about. That road to Jericho, when they have to go through that valley, the way of blood, the, the valley of the shadow of death, that place where people are vulnerable to robbers and nomads. And so Jesus tells the story of this man who's robbed and left for half, you know, left for dead. And then a priest and a Levite, they're traveling because they're on their way to Jerusalem. They've got a job to do. That's important. They have ministry to do. And if they stop, they will not be able to do that ministry. Please understand this. In their system, in this Jewish system, their ministry made what the, who they were. That, that actually spoke to their value and who they were. You're really worth something if you're a priest, if you're a Levite. If you touch somebody who might die a little bit later in the day, that's not good because now you are not able to do that ministry. And look who you've let down. So um, you've got a Levite and a priest And, oh, can I just put my finger on this? This Jewish religious lawyer would have identified himself as those type of people, the good guys. So they pass by. The third traveler moved with compassion, meaning this. Here's the the meaning of this word. I mean, you can look it up in the Greek language, but the point is, that his heart was connected to his eyeballs. So, hammer, nothing wrong with that. Okay? In fact, I think there's something actually really, really right with it. When our eyes aren't connected with our heart, something's not right. And so he gets off of his animal. He cleans the man's wounds. He gives him wine and oil. He bandages him up. He brings him up to an end pays for it out of his own pocket. This is the person whose care saves the man's life. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, he's a Samaritan. The very last person any self-respecting Jew would have asked for help from. So, again, Jesus is telling the story. He's on the road to Jerusalem, but he's in Samaria. So, the thing I want us to, to begin to notice is the difference between the Samaritan and these two holy men who happened along the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, it wasn't a matter of eyesight. All three of them saw the man lying in the ditch. The difference is what they did with what they saw. And if I can just get this pointed about this, I have lived in this place where I, where I have been compelled by what I believed was more important than the need in front of me. Oh, goodness. That's what happened. 
I've got I've to go do ministry. I can't minister here. The Samaritan, he did more than just look and see, but Jesus identifies and gives this word compassion, meaning more than just pity. It touches something in his heart that changes his response. So the, the Samaritan doesn't just see an enemy because, oh, wait a minute, he was actually the person that he would not have associated with. The Samaritan didn't see an enemy lying in the, be- in, in the ditch. He saw a person in need. He saw a brother, a neighbor, and his heart went out to the stranger. See, part of the significance of that story I started with with Don Malarkey and Fritz Engelbert was that they were given this gift 60 years later to see the person that later they found out, oh, interestingly, you wrote letters to your mother, so did I. Wait, you were praying to the same God I was praying to? And suddenly they saw one another. Jesus turns to this religious leader and says, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man? I had never noticed this this before. I want you to notice something. This legal religious leader, lawyer, religious leader, couldn't even call him a Samaritan. That's how hard it was for him. The one. goes into third person. The one who showed mercy. Now, he does connect this. Watch this. He rightly connects the word mercy, and he understands that mercy is about the very character and heart of God because God's loving kindness, his mercy, is what he's bound himself in the covenant to. His said, his fierce loyalty to his own covenant. So the one who showed mercy is the one who looks like God. Jesus said, go be like the Samaritan. Go and do the same. Now, I I would like to point to something here that this is often where where we stop. Meaning that we connect with this idea. Yes, care for the person in need. See the person. Yes, I want to. I want to have compassion. I want my eyes to be connected to my heart. I want to respond. I want to dig out of my own pocket. But I want to say what Jesus didn't say in black and white, but is clearly in the text. I want to suggest that when Jesus said, go show mercy, it also means this. Go be like the person that you snub. The person that you think you're more righteous than. The person you think is your enemy. 
Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about the neighbor who's doing awful things in his home, and I'm, that pastor said, I get to go do awful things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, let, let's, let, in fact, let's just, let's just focus, you know, narrow down right on to this point, which is this, that the Samaritan came in vulnerability. Watch this. He goes to care for the very person who could do him harm. The person who had the power, and he comes and he cares for that person. Go and do the same. Go and do likewise. He's not referring so much to the Samaritan as even just the one in the ditch. What if Jesus is saying not only showing mercy to the people that disgust me, but allowing the person who disgusts me to show mercy to me? To be vulnerable. See, when, when this religious leader, lawyer, is asking the question, he's asking the question that I ask sometimes. Who's my neighbor? Here's what I'm actually asking, Jesus. Who do I get to treat as a neighbor? And who can I get away with not treating as a neighbor? Who do I get to love and who do I get to not love? Because they haven't been neighborly to me at all. Who is it okay to exclude Jesus? I need to know. Well, let me see. Let me tell you a story that I think you'll connect with and a place that you will connect with. Go and do the same. Go and do the same. Whose neighbor will you be? Who will you let be a neighbor to you? Go and do the same. I see. I, we like to identify with the person who does the right thing in the story. But if we're rightly interpreting the text, as Jesus was telling the story, that would be the person who disgusts me. See, we like to identify with this story, the idea that he stops, he has compassion, he binds up the wounds, brings them to the nearest end. And I dare say that oftentimes that's my default. I want to identify with the person who is able to come take what I have and help. And again, I just want to say this. I want to repeat this again. That Samaritan didn't necessarily act out of his position of privilege. He was actually vulnerable. He acted out of compassion, taking risk in offering help to someone who had the power to actually harm him. Go and do the same. I like the way that one person wrote this, because this is real provoking for me this week as I was reading about this. Listen. In life, sometimes we're the ones who need to be rescued, and the one who disgusts us is the one, the, the most, uh, might be that very person that Jesus has sent into our lives to pull us out of the ditch, to wipe the dirt off of our faces, to proclaim you're forgiven, to bandage our wounded pride, to give us a, a ride to a place where we can heal, where we can become whole. 
go and do the same. I, I, I want to just say this, um, to, to, again, that we do not miss the glaring, clear part of this story, which is we've all been the guy in the ditch, okay? We were all left in the valley in the shadow of death. It was Jesus who came to the valley of the shadow of death through the way of blood to restore and rescue and redeem us. That's the gospel. It's our story that we proclaim in the face of fear and death. I was sharing this, this last week. I, I just, beloved, again, sometimes i got to just say this over my own head in the morning. This is the reality. Christ has overcome all of this. This news of our demise and fall and all the dismal news around us, it is, it's a, it's a ruse, guys. It really is. The reality is Christ has overcome all of it. And therefore, mercy, which is a person, okay? God reveals His mercy triumphs over judgment. His fierce loyalty has come. Where did it come? Right here, where I didn't expect it. But guys, I, I want us to have an imagination for this. Lord, where, where am I thinking that your mercy can't get to? Oh, wait, it's here. The kingdom is here. Go and proclaim the kingdom's here. It's here. The will of God to which the law gives expression is that men should defeat their enemies. Guys, that, that doesn't mean that we are powering over them, okay? It's just so I'm clearly giving that quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But that we defeat our enemies by loving them. Beloved, the good news that we're proclaiming today is that in a world defined by division, inviting us to fear, inviting us to horribleize and other people. You know what I mean by othering, Right? Nothing is more powerful than the mercy and the love of God revealed in human lives. No barrier, no boundary, no place, no person is beyond the reach of God's mercy. Amen? Go and do the same. Amen? I want to invite us to stand and respond to this message this morning. Let's, let's pray this prayer together, and then, um, yeah, let's do a couple of things. I'm gonna, I want us to uh, uh, pray this prayer, and then I'm going to lead us into the 23rd Psalm, and then just a, a, a normal confession of, of, uh, of our own heart, and then bring us to the Lord's table. And so uh, let's, let's go ahead and pray this prayer. Divine Judge. You framed the earth with love and mercy and declared it good. Yet we, desiring to justify ourselves, judge others harshly without knowledge or understanding. Keep us faithful in prayer that we may be filled with the knowledge of your will. And not ignore or pass by another's need, but plumb the depths of love in showing mercy. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores and revives my soul. He guides me along right pathways for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely, all that is good, all that is beautiful, all of your loving kindness, and all of your mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, thank you that you bring us to a table of abundance. And this isn't just a picture. You know the shadows that are cast. And yet your invitation that you've come to us, you've invaded the shadows. You've revealed mercy. So Lord, as we come to this table, a table of abundance, the abundance of your mercy your grace and your kindness. Lord, we confess our need. Lord, we have sinned. We've sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by what we have done, by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart, not loved our neighbor as ourselves, and we're truly sorry, and we humbly repent and ask for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, to cleanse us. Make us new. That we would delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory and the honor of your name. So, beloved, I want to